This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. G'day, welcome to Free Left Turn here on 89.0 Independent Community Media. Somewhat sidetracked before, um, an article appeared on the on the internet regarding Amelia Earhart, the US aviatrix who disappeared um, over the Pacific in 1937. And the, the, the article was saying that her... Um, or the remains of a particular person found on this atoll or island have been confirmed to, to 99%. So, yeah, there you go. Maybe just another theory. You never know with all these with all these historical events where people have disappeared and and want to know what happened to them. And Amelia Earhart was one. Kingsford Smith is another one. And the list goes on. This week... We're back at working at home again, um, level three, um, looking at the numbers of the affected people out there. And today, 169, 169, seven in the Waikato, 151 in Auckland, one in Northland, and I think one or two in Christchurch. So the numbers are getting up, they're sort of balancing up and down. But today's number was quite, it's been the highest to date, surpassing, I think, the 129 earlier this week. Yeah, we just got a grit and bear it. Um, there, there are those out there who don't want a grit and bear it. Uh, they want to have restrictions loosened um, because they believe that their freedom has been impinged on. Well, if the whole bloody thing spreads around the place, then you'd have no bloody freedom at all. We'd all be, we'd all be quarantined. But the bigger grizzlers that come out this week include Sir Russell Coots, the man who was knighted for treachery amongst the yachting fraternity. And then you have Ian Taylor, another Sir, um, whinging about um, lack of freedom or lack of um, movement or allowed movement within business circles and then the other whinger and pain in the ass Simon Galt Cook having a go because of the restrictions in the hospitality industry these people who are whinging are privileged people um, they can survive these sorts of crises a lot of people can't because they live week to week or day to day uh, don't pay any credit to those sorts of people they're only feeding on feeding into those already whinging out there including members of the National Party and ACT. And I think the government's done a pretty good job in trying to keep us safe from both COVID-19 and the Delta variant. So if, it, if we have to be locked down to the 15th of November, November, so be it. Yeah, got a message from my work uh, this week to tell me that the return to work looks pretty um, remote in the, for next week anyway. Uh, we're looking at the 15th at most and and that's going to be tied in with the schools going back and given the numbers, the high numbers currently, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Are, am I going to be, are we going to be stuck um, at home for the rest of this year working? Oh, yeah. 
don't really mind it, but it gets a little bit on the tedious side. Um, need a bit of variety, but you just got to take it on the chin and hope for the best. But um, a little bit tired of the tide of the, of the whinging. The vaccination rates look good. Uh, Auckland, Queenstown, Dunedin must hold their heads high. That they're trying to get those numbers up to that that um, threshold of 90% for both vaccinations. There are a number of areas lagging behind. Northland, with that moaning mare from Whangarei. Uh, then there is the likes of Tarafiti um, and West Coast of the South Island, Bay of Plenty. These sorts of areas, uh, they're hovering around that 65 to 69% um, double vaccination rates. And I suspect there's a large Maori population component in there that hasn't been vaccinated. Interesting to hear on the news this week from the an article on the Taranaki DHB where um, there was comments made about a low Maori vaccination rate and people going, I think there were an iwi group going around getting people, encouraged people to get vaccinated. And an interesting comment made by a local uh, uh, iwi, iwi member saying that the DHB fails to engage with iwi over the vaccination program. And then you have this um, classic CEO for a DHB, white European, saying, oh, no, no, we're, we're engaged with with, um, with iwi, with hapu, etc., etc. But you can always say, see right through that. Um, given that the race relations in the Taranaki over the years haven't been all that great. That aside, the other issue that takes my keen interest, like it has for quite some time, is the Three Waters Project. You know, um, you know this idea around, um, proposal around swimmable rivers, clean drinking water, and wastewater that's um, um, that's been treated in such a way that it can be released safely into the environment. And there's been howls of derision about this um, from councils. And I've always stated, or my thing has been, councils have been a poor guardian of water infrastructure. You'd have to look no further than here. Um... And, and it's only a minor point, but when you report leaking pipes to council here, um, their action or inaction in getting a thing fixed is um, glaringly obvious. But you could just think of the poor state of water infrastructure in Wellington, uh, where the water pipes are decrepit and leaking and blowing apart. Uh, and there'll be other examples of poorly managed infrastructure by our local authorities so i agree with the three proposal um what the three waters proposal uh, a lot of people don't um and you would have seen that nasty comment that appeared in the that appeared online but it, i think it came out of the white wild age um from a local councillor describing the government as a um, deceitful lying bunch of bastards and that's not the worst of it um, there were quite blatant racist comments made about the current minister for local government and it's quite disgraceful that we still do that I'm hoping that um, they do go forward with the three waters proposal uh, my fear is that it will probably be watered down to to, to state the um, the whingers, as I call them, and these people who believe that it will be Maori ownership only, but it's not. It's going to be like it, like like the the fertility of whiting. It's going to be a partnership in this area. One of the interesting um, comments I read about the the proposal came about came from Gareth Morgan, a privileged person, but he tended to um, write what some of us think. Local bodies incapable of managing water resources. Of course, local government councils should hand over water assets. They are liabilities in virtually all cases. We all know local government, local councils, sorry, have been incompetent in this area, from Auckland's inability to provide enough water to, to, to its citizens, to Wellington's total lack of investment in sewers. The incompetence of local body politicians in this area 
is completely in, completely complete, endemic, and intergenerational. So move the whole shenanigans from ratepayers to taxpayers, and at least that will achieve the economies of scale inherent in centralization. In centralization, sorry. Just as the round-the-block restructuring with DHBs has proved necessary. New Zealand is a small country. Local ratepayers of small towns don't have the money to pay for their water reticulation. In, in, and in our larger cities, the local politicians have proven that short-term objectives that help, that help their re-election are far more important than long-term infrastructure projects. Haha, <laughs> I get that feeling in Hamilton. Good move, Labour. Well done, Nanaia Mahuta. You have listened to rational advice. Goff and Dalziel need to park their self-interest and pull their heads in. And that useless half-wit John Carter, that's my words, needs to front up to the impoverished ratepayers of the North and tell them why he wants to keep screwing them down. So, yeah, Three Waters, camp, Three Waters Project. Um, I support it. I hope a lot more people do. And as far as the vaccinations, again, yes, we just have to encourage people to go out there and get their vaccinations done to get those numbers up to the 90%. Thinking back now I suppose you were just stating your views What was it all for? For the weather or the battle of Agincourt And the times that we all hoped would last Like a train they have gone by so fast And though we stood together at the edge of the platform We were not moved by them not the same I miss the thunder I miss the rain and the fact that you don't understand casts a shadow over this land but the sun still shines from behind Thanks all the same But I just can't bring myself To answer your letters It's not your fault But your honesty touches me like a fire The Polaroids that hold us together Will surely fade away like the love that we spoke of forever on St. Swithin's Day. Going on a bit of a history learning here, and it 
relates really to communism and if you go out go out and so say say I'm a communist for example or you like following the readings of Marx or Lenin uh, or Gramsci or whatever or whoever you like to follow you'll get a backlash from certain quarters and they'll say well amongst the ranks of the communist countries were the greatest despots in the world ever under Stalin under Mao Zedong and under Pol Pot I know that's a bad example millions and millions of people died through um, purges disease famines and so on yes of course, that is correct. If you read the historical stuff, events that led to the lives, loss of life in those countries, under those regimes run by those people, cost people, millions of people, their lives. It's a stated fact. However, a stated fact also was that on one of the world's greatest despots, Hitler, who was a fascist, and that's from the other side of the political spectrum, created a mass killing as well through a well declaring um declaring war invading poland and and opened up the abyss or opened the doors to full-scale world war which resulted in the loss of millions of lives and then you have the war front over in the pacific theater again where the japanese had invaded manchuria in the early 1930s and spread through through China, and millions of people died as a result of that, um, and the, and that you would also include the bombings of um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in that total. So, okay, there's another what's it called right wing uh, country that caused the massive loss of life. U.S. involvement in Vietnam, yeah, lots of lives were lost in both um, Vietnam. And Cambodia, which became Cambodia for quite for a little while. Going back even further, you go back into the First World War. How many people lost their lives there? That runs into the millions. And hidden within within that space was the genocide of the Armenians by the Ottoman Turk Empire in those years around 1915, 1916, and. And our country in particular doesn't recognise that because they don't want to offend the Turks. Well, I've always said, too bad. They they kill those people, so it sh- we should recognise that. Uh, then you step even further back and you go into uh, Belgium, Congo, where it became the king of Belgium's personal, well, playground, basically. And lo- many people lost their lives. I don't think it was millions, but it was thousands. And even the Germans' involvement in what is now Namibia um, in the extermination of um, indigenous people um, cost um, many lives. The other one that comes springs to mind if you're a history nut like me is uh, the uh, Mongol invasion of uh, right through the steppes of Russia into the Middle East and into the eastern um, fringes of Europe. In that particular in that particular invasion, that was over years ago, um, whole cities were decimated, whole whole um, areas were wiped out, people were slaughtered right up into the, the battles that were fought in what is now probably modern day Poland and East and, and Germany. Lots many people were killed through and they say it's war. Um, the Crusades, many people were killed, and so on and so on and so on. So, history has been littered with horrific events of mass annihilation of people through one way or another. And we think it's rather, I think it's rather kind of quite short-sighted that uh, when you say that you, I'm a communist, for example, I was say I'm a Marxist, that you get tarred with this brush about despotic leaders 
um, wiping out millions of people, and they're they're a bad image. Of course, they're a bad image. Uh, I, I totally accept that. But there are also other bad images, and these people alike. For example, you talk about the uh, we talk about the Tur- Turkish, the Ottoman Empire, and the Armenians. That's a bad example. A good example of a, a genocide in in the ninth in the twentieth century, I should say, where you had fascism in Europe and where well, you call it fascism in 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 the Pacific Asian theatre. But you also have these um, rulers like uh, Leopold II uh, with, with the Congo, and you having um, even the German Empire, as it was in the 19th, particularly the 19th, early part of the 20th century, doing what they did in Namibia, and so on. And, and you can say, well, if, if you still say, oh, I'm, I'm a royalist, well, well, there's been a lot of, lot of despotic royalists, isn't there? And they've killed millions of people. Uh, are you going to condemn people for that? I think when you're coming to the fact around tarring people with the communist thing and tarring them as associated with, with despots, you could, I think that is com- completely inaccurate. Because when it comes to communism, you need to understand probably the writings of Marx in that, in that, in that aspect. And um, what was his thinking around the, um, the revolution, or the workers' revolution? How, 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 was it gonna, how was it supposed to manifest itself? And where, what, what's the countries, was it, was it more likely to happen? What countries were, was more likely not to happen? And it all comes down to that word of development. The development or the industrialization of a nation, highly industrialized, more enlightened worker pool, workers or worker pool, not more uh, more intelligent ideas floating around, or is it going to be in some sort of rural? Is it going to see succeed? I should say in some rural backwater or a empire which hasn't developed. Technically, industrial, industrially, um, and, my, and the way that M- Marx had written his *Das Kapital*, the the best or fertile environment for a socialist or communist revolution to take place is in a developed nation, because the proletariat. Polit- was there in place and there in number. It wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be in a place like Tsarist Russia, because Tsarist Russia was rather backward at best. A largely agrarian population with a very minimal um, industrialised component. And ditto China, largely agrarian, and again... A more of a smaller industrial component. So you're looking at history, you look at where what communism was, what was the more likely places it should have, or what Marx had envisaged would happen, and, and compare it to where it actually did happen. And this is, would be the interesting analysis. You need to make very sure when you accuse somebody of being a communist that they're not following uh, or having their, what do you call them, their idols like some Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. It's a little bit more, it's a little bit more wider than that. It's got more of a, there's more, more background around that. So... The whole concept of communism needs to, before you make a, you know, the whole concept of communism, when you make a disparaging comment, you need to um, be well informed. Otherwise, you'll just be indulging in total ignorance.
course I grew up in Oldfield Girl next door And the boy that never cried I was dreaming of those Elizabethan girls While you were working in the market To earn ourselves And when you found out what happened yesterday While you were away in this land of Cain We were upstairs in the bedroom Dancing, disgusting and flushing our babies Down the drain of the apple that don't want to get into We'll still fall off the tree When you're in as deep as we are, honey It's so easy to get washed out to sea But the facts of life are not man and wife But man and woman, sadly And the apple that doesn't want to get eaten Will still fall off last time about how communists or communism is viewed as one of these uh, philosophies or one of these systems where um, yet largely a negative connotation uh, because of the countries where communist, communism um, was prevalent and is prevalent. Uh, uh, Russia, China, uh, Cambodia, etc. Going back to what we spoke about last time and the thinking of Karl Marx when he put together Das Kapital and his thinking about where the most likelihood of a, of a uh, workers' revolution would take place. And his kind of thinking from his work is that it would be in a, uh, an industrialised nation like England. However, that wasn't the case. Um, the first um, workers' revolution, as you may call it, happened in what what became Soviet Russia. And that's rather a, unusual because at that time Russia didn't have a, a fully developed uh, industrialised working class, as they call them. They were largely, as I said before, an agrarian country. However, when the... Um, First World War so culminated into the um, into into the fall of the Tsarist regime, and we got the uh, Bolsheviks taking over. After the end of the war, that was civil war within Russia, where the Bolsheviks were trying to keep their position or maintain their position against what they would call the what they call the White Army. The army that was made up of probably privileged Russians, um, joined by other uh, other armies, uh, Britain, Czech, etc. And in the light of that, the Bolsheviks actually won the civil war, if you would call um, if you would call it that. Uh, the civil war culminated in a loss, a huge loss of life. In in the aftermath of that, there was a great famine in the early 1920s and the Soviet government or the Bolshevik government basically sat back really and did nothing. Many people died and we're probably talking about millions and the USA was involved in the famine relief at the time. Uh, the name Herbert Hoover comes to mind a person who would become president of the United States at, at the um, on the eve of the Depression. So they just sat back and done nothing there. The, the, then the country went through a, f a form of industrialisation, agrarian um, revolution, etc. 
And then we come into the 1930s and what they call the Holodomor, which was a great famine that affected mainly uh, the Ukraine. Again, millions of people died um, as Soviet as the Soviets pushed for collectivization and were trying to end the control of the Kulak class, which um, controlled a lot of the agriculture, particularly in the Ukraine. And it culminated, as I said, in a huge loss of life. Then we get, after that, uh, we get what they call the Great Purges of the 1930s, where a lot of, um, excuse me, a lot of people also perished, but this is also, that was due mainly to the uh, Stalin, through probably what they, they, they caught, accused him of having paranoia, trying to get people, rid of people who he deemed to be enemies of the state. And they and they were quite widespread, from his, polit- from his political allies to his political opponents, to members of the armed forces, members of the judiciary, men, men, members of the NKVD, which is a secret police. Um, interesting, I did take notes about some of this stuff. It's quoted as saying it was by a Japanese writer of this particular period of the Great Purge, political terror is the cornerstone of 1930 Russian politics. Hiroyaki Kuramaya, um, he was, in a, a, he was in a, a, a Japanese historian, and that's how he quoted it. And, it, and he goes on to say it was a policy of extraordinarily intense, concentrated and purposelessly killings of at least hundreds of thousands of people. Army, kulaks, politicians, judges, workers, etc, etc. Um, they were accused basically of being hidden enemies of the state. Many people were sentenced to death, probably in excess of 75-80% of them, those um, executions were carried out. People were sent to gulags, a lot perished there, either through execution or being worked to death. Um, and the question would remain, why did Stalin do this? Why did Stalin do this? The Trotskyists, fascists and counter-revolutionary plots, too, were mainly just figments of paranoia and distrust. So, going into the, into, into the Second World War, Russia, Soviet Russia, you could say between this end of the, end of the First World War, in the start of the Second World War, uh, under the under the Soviet regime, mainly the Stalin regime, millions of people died, and that's why people get the hang up about um, Stalin being a despot, and right, probably rightly so. It goes on to say it further when Russia involves itself in the Second World War, and many Russians died in the um, protection or the defence of the homeland. So. That's the point about um, Stalin in particular. He um, he's deemed to be a despot by those who deemed to have this sort of um, hangover about communists in it, and he was a bad ruler. Yeah, so millions of people died. In China, China was also a communist country, and one of the um, significant events after the the, t- the communist takeover in 1949 was the Great Leap Forward. And the Great Leap Forward was supposed to be, um, I'll just go through this, it was about developed collectivism, industrialisation, crop experiments, immigration, backyard furnaces. However, uh, what basically came out of that was that um, crops failed, um, there were not enough people working the land, there was deforestation um, causing natural disasters, and from natural disasters there were famines. And as a result of that, millions of people perished. And that's why people paint um, Mao Zedong in that bad light, mainly because of the, the, the huge loss of life during those years, around about 1958 to 1961. I think they said it in excess, in between... 30 to 55 million people perished in that time. And there were and there were and there were also accounts of cannibalism as well, because that's how bad it got. And as a result, Mao Zedong took a back seat to politics uh, for a number of years, but he he um, 
he he died in his time, and then you get the Cultural Revolution, and again, a large number of people died. And this is and this is also this hang up as of Mao Zedong being a a despot. So his under him millions of people died. Under Stalin, millions of people died. The other example, and it's also um, a it's also an Asian nation, is Cambodia, which was formerly Cambodia, which is now Cambodia again, when the Pol Pot regime took over the running of the country. It was a what was it? Was it was a classless described as a classless utopia, um, a communist agrarian revolution, w in which all the people were emptied out of the cities and sent into the countryside. Academics, professional people, military people, etc., were exterminated initially, those who were deemed to have um, any kind of education. Even people wearing glasses were executed in the most brutal fashion. And this went on for four years in Cambodia, as it was, and it led to the death of about a quarter of the population, which is between two to three million. And that's where you get the killing fields from. It only stopped when the, when the Vietnam army attacks um, Pol Pot's Cambodia and drove him from power. And, yeah, and he died in the jungle. He was never brought to any form of justice. So, this is why people have hang-ups about communism, because they align us with despotic leaders. But communist, communism in its pure form would not lead to these sorts of disasters, because basically it's China, Russia, China, and Cambodia, agrarian, agrarian countries, largely agrarian, small industrial base, which was collapsed, and, and that, that's only a rough description of it. If communism was communism was working its pure form, yeah, there may not be so much hang-ups. Uh, Cuba, for example, that's a anti-imperialist state, um, but you could call it a socialist state, and it seemed to be successful. And the and the Cuban Revolution has lasted over sixty years, so. There's some positives for us communists out there. You're listening to Free FM, independent community media. This government had an idea and parliament made it law. Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Set off to join the picket lines, but together we cannot fail. We got stopped by police at the county line. They said, "Go on, boys, or you'll go into jail." And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? It's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. Said the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, Sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you Follow my conscience and I'll do whatever I can And it'll take much more than a union law To knock the fight out of a working man And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? 
always which side are you on? I came across this interesting article that was shared via Facebook, and it's entitled, uh, or title I should say, The Hollywood Ten, The Men Who Refuse to Name Names. When the, when the House Un-American Activities Committee subpoenaed filmmakers to testify about communism in the industry, a few held their ground and for a time lost their livelihood. I'll just quote all this. Um, it was the casting call no one in Hollywood wanted to receive. In October 1947, when the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, convened a hearing in Washington, D.C. to investigate subversive activities in the entertainment industry, 41 screenwriters, directors and producers were subpoenaed. Most witnesses were friendly, that is, willing to respond to the committee's central question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And those who confessed to membership were offered the opportunity to name fellow travellers, thereby regaining their good standing with the committee and, by extension, the American film industry. Ten witnesses, all current or former party members, banded together in protest, refusing to cooperate on the First Amendment grounds, freedom of speech, right of assembly, freedom of association, and affirming that the HUAC disagreed. It found the so-called Hollywood Ten in contempt of Congress, fined them each $1,000 and sentenced them up to a year in federal prison. All ten artists who were fired by a group of studio executives in the in the era of of and in and the era of the Hollywood blacklist began and meet meet the Hollywood ten. So there is Alva Bessie. We'll just go through the name. Sorry, I'm not going to read their blurb. Harold H. Biberman, Lester Cole, Edward Dimrick. I think he's Czech with a name like that. Ring Lardner Jr. Uh, John Howard Lawson, um, Alfred Al- Albert Malt, sorry, um, Stu- Samuel, sorry, Ordnitz, Robert Adrian Scott, and Dalton Trumbo, and I should say that name properly again, Dalton Trumbo, yes, I did say it right, and yeah, those are those are the ten. So the House on Ameri- on American Activities Committee, yeah, the most famous person to front that committee in my eyes was Paul Robeson and I've got a book by Jeff Sparrow called No Way But This and it's this book about the life of Paul Robeson and he had to front up to the House of Un-American Activities Committee and yeah and there's an interesting what would you call it uh, clash between himself and a member of the committee, and I'll just try and find the page because I was just had it, I was just reading it before, but I thought it might be good to quote in light of this article about the the Hollywood Ten. So he was brought to these to the committee, and this is probably a little bit more later than the um, events for the Hollywood Ten. The, we're just going to quote it from a certain point, and it starts with um, one of the committee members, Richard Arends, asking, are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you, and Paul Robeson responded, would you like to come to the ballot box when I vote and take out the ballot and see? The, se- the session was interrupted as Walter, and it's Francis E. Walter, he was a, he was a chairman of the HUAC, um, as Walter directed the press photographers to take the photos. He craved as much publicity as possible. He knew that that, that images would help his cause. And Paul Robeson says, Do you want me to pose for it for it good? Do you want me to smile? Gordon Shearer, the most senior Republican panelist, protested about Robeson's manner. The HUAC investigation, he said, was not a laughing matter. And Paul Robeson responded, It's a laughing matter to me. This is really complete nonsense. When Paul did something that the panel liked, even less, he began to ask his own questions. When Francis Walter spoke, Rosen and Paul Rosen insisted that the chairman introduce himself. Who was he? Where did he come from? 
who exactly did he represent? Almost certainly Paul already knew his knew the answers. Walter was a was a famously racist, an overt white supremacist, an overt white supremacist, a thin-lipped Democrat from Pennsylvania. He was the, a director with the Pioneer Fund, an organization that pronounced eugenics in the United States. He was also one of the architects of the Immigration and Nation- Nationality Act of 1952, which allowed the U.S. The United States to restrict entry to migrants based upon ra- racial quotas and political affiliations. After Walter announced his name, Paul said, uh, "You are the author of all the all the all that bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country." Walter res- responded, "No, only your kind." Walter was heading an all-white panel interrogating a black man. The implication of the phrase "your kind" escaped few listeners. Even so, Paul spelled them out for the journalists in attendance: "Coloured people like myself from the West Indies and all kinds, and just and just the Teutonic." Anglo-Saxon sort that you would let in. We are trying to get, get, make it easy to get rid of your kind too. And that was a Walker comment. You do not want any coloured people to come in. That's a Paul Robeson comment. Walter refused to take the bait and and any further proceed. And it goes on. Yeah, we had the, got the Hollywood 10 there. But the most famous person I feel that was um, questioned by the HUAC was Paul Robeson. And there was that clash. And I think there was other... I, I think it's a recorded um, interview of Paul Robeson talking about that. The Hollywood turn, they didn't just, just, didn't just, they weren't the only people in the entertainment industry who were brought before them. There were quite a number. We've, we, we, we've heard about, we've heard about the likes of Lionel Standers, an actor who was brought before them. Uh, we've heard about Burl Ives being brought before them. Will Greer was another one that was brought before them. A lot of the, I think one of, the, I think some spilt the beans on it. Some were ardently um, weren't going to going to say anything and and not get the cat out of it. And some of them, some of them suffered a lot as a result. They never um, they never got a look in again in the entertainment industry or their career their careers were curtailed for quite a significant period. So it's all to do with the fear of communism. Reds under the bed stuff. HUAC, uh, uh, McCarthyism, etc. So it's all the same thing. This American affair about communists in every nook and cranny coming out to undermine the, the US way of life. Interesting history. One, one, of the, one of the significant components in there, which we didn't mention, is the story around the, the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel, and their... And their, and their um, prosecution execution because they were deemed to have sold secrets to soviet russia around i think it was around the atomic industry but a very interesting period of time yeah, and a lot of people um you know, a lot of people actually suffered um unduly as a result of basically scaremongering by the u.s government i was 21 years when i wrote this song i'm 22 now but i won't be for long People ask me when will you grow up to be a man But all the girls I love in school are already pushing grams I loved you then as I love you still Though I put you on a bed, still they put you on the pill I don't feel bad about letting you go I just feel sad about letting you know Looking for another girl Looking 
looking for another girl, looking for another girl. I put on my right. And sure enough the skies opened up again I dreamed of you so I walked to the shops You were dancing with the wallies on top of the pops Once in a while Maddy Garasimov drops his smile And you can see that his eyes A portfolio pregnant with guys been up all night moving the goalpost like a jackdaw with a fiery brand spread the news all over this land Robin Hood and his merry men are never, never, never coming back Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.